Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Resinello. Oh, you're exactly right, Joe. We work for the man upstairs as you do. You're setting me up quite well. You just gave me an alley-oop. The greatest revolutionary act you can commit right now is to open your mouth and speak the truth. Whether you're an academic or you're a regular guy, we have to be fearless. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach. Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo, as always, joined by Joe Resinello. And once more, dear brothers and sisters, let us go into the breach on the Veritas Catholic Radio Network. 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial, serving the New York metropolitan area, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Radio Network mobile app so that you've got to have access to all of our station's content. And also, please do Joe and I a favor wherever you see us on social media, particularly on the Frontline TV, the Frontline TV on YouTube. Uh, we'd love for you to hit a like, subscribe, share, any of that fun stuff. And today, we are very pleased and honored to be joined by Brother John and Brother Bede of the Dominican Order in England. And uh, we're going to be talking about the 800th anniversary of the arrival of that order uh, in England. So it's going to be a great conversation. Uh, I want to give a quick bio. Brother John was born in London and raised by um, a Catholic and, and, or excuse me, raised a Catholic by an English father and a Dutch mother. He first encountered the Dominicans at Blackfriars while studying class, classics at Oxford and entered the novitiate in 2018 after a year working back in London. His attraction to religious life um, initially grew out of uh, spent time working with the missionaries of charity, which then crystallized into a Dominican vocation through a desire to integrate the contemplative life with preaching and study. He is currently based in Oxford, studying at the Blackfriars Studium, has just finished philosophy studies and is in his first year of theology studies. Uh, Brother Bede was born in London, but grew up in the English countryside. He joined the Order of Preachers or Dominicans straight after finishing his degree in classics at Oxford also, having been impressed by the example of other young friars and feeling drawn to the order's apostolic form of life. He is now in the middle of his theological studies at the Dominican Studium in Oxford, Brother Bede and Brother John. Welcome to the front line with Joe and Joe. Thank, thank you. you very much. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having us on. Excellent. Thank you. Gentlemen, would you start us off with a prayer and then we'll get into the conversation? Yes. So let's uh, pray to the Lord to send forth on us the spirit of truth, that we may speak words of truth, the words of the gospel, and believe them in our hearts. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, and they shall be recreated. And thou shalt renew the face of the, the, earth. Of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who have taught the hearts of the faithful by the light of the Holy Spirit, grant by that same spirit that we may be truly wise and ever rejoice in his consolation, you who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for that, brother. So, Joe, where are we going to start? Well... I guess a, a good place to start is where I kind of saw these gentlemen on Twitter. Uh, these are two guys of four friars who made uh, a pilgrimage. They they walked on foot 230 miles from Kent to Oxford via Canterbury. And as Joe said, to commemorate the 800th anniversary of the Dominican order in England. Um, I guess a good place to start is why was this a significant, obviously 800 years is a significant mark, but why was it significant? And what made you, you know, commemorate this event with a pilgrimage? So I, I think there are a number of aspects to that. As you say, 800 years is in itself a wonderful thing to celebrate and a reason to um, have a, a series of events we've had in our Jubilee year to really mark this milestone of our life and presence in this country. It, it's worth saying 1221, the year we're commemorating is the Dominican order was still quite young then, but it's also the year that we commemorate the death of St. Dominic. And St. Dominic sent the friars from Bologna in a general chapter to England um, and died... Um, around the time they arrived on these shores. So it's a very important year for the 
the Dominican order as a whole worldwide. And so we wanted to make sure we really commemorated that moment 800 years ago. I suppose in, to some degree to celebrate 800 years of presence in this country, our history, as I'm sure we'll hopefully get into a bit over the course of this conversation, our history has been very eventful to say the least, um, the, particularly the suppression of the monasteries and the um, uh, under Henry VIII when we were sort of kicked out of the country and then came back in um, later on in some missionary work during that time, the flourishing in the medieval cities and universities and then a, um, and then in the last 150 years or so when Dominican life has um, taken on a new form in, in parishes and our work in universities and hospitals, prisons and so on. And so to really celebrate the full um, extent of that of that time and, and, and then secondly as a time of renewal I think for us by, by celebrating our 800 years in this country, it's an opportunity to renew our mission today and, and preach the gospel ever new. I'll, I'll tell you, I saw, you probably have seen, did you see the movie? Um, I believe it was uh, the Filipino Dominicans that put out a movie on St. Dominic that was on EWTN about his the founding of the order and basically how he went into the French countryside. Have you seen that film? The, uh, you tell I'm not no, sure I have it. Well, I, it, it's, it's been on EWTN a number of times, and I'll be honest with you. I always knew about St. Dominic. Obviously, I've read about him. I have, you know, a decent understanding of, of what you guys do. But that movie really, like, had a deep impression on me, particularly uh, – what was the uh, the heresy, the Albigensian heresy? Was that am – I, am I wrong? Okay. How your order – went barefoot basically into the countryside and relied on providence it like i mean dominic was a radical man i mean like and i i watched that film and i'll be truthful with you there were so many moments in it that really like moved me and then i saw this pilgrimage i said you guys are doing the same thing you're walking in basically a secular country through the countryside not like america is any better I'm not don't not like I'm throwing stones, but you're getting back to basics. Talk about what the need we as Catholics, we got to get back to basics. And that's what you guys did. And that's why, to be honest with you, when I saw it, I was like, we got to talk to these guys. Yeah, we I mean, the reason I think why pilgrimage was such a fitting thing was because, as you say, for the early friars, um, there was something really well walking really grounds us in what we are, the fact that we're flesh and blood human beings. Um, the, and of course, I think back in the Middle Ages, people were much more keenly aware of the fact that um, it's hard to survive. And of course, we live in a, a climate now that's um, in the West, in most of us in Europe and the US enjoy a certain kind of affluence and a, a detachment maybe from the hardship that would have been known in medieval France. But um, one of the reasons why St. Dominic's preaching was so convincing to people and more successful than some of the preachers who had gone before him was the fact that it was authenticated, it was real, um, because he embraced uh, poverty, because he embraced um, people and met them in, in the space of their ordinary lives. So going on a pilgrimage was a reminder to, uh, to us very much of the origins of our order in very great simplicity, in poverty, relying on the help and the assistance of others, uh, not trying to plan everything um, to the nth degree, but trusting in providence, in fact, and realizing that um, God goes before us to prepare the way that, um, like in the Acts of the Apostles, the, um, the word simply has to be proclaimed. We don't have to, uh, we don't always have to have this mentality that we need to find ways of um, find scientific ways of getting people into the church or getting people to believe the gospel. I mean, you know, sociological studies and rhetorical techniques and great learning may all be very useful tools, but they're not necessary. The harvest is already there waiting for the laborers to go out into it. Um, and a pilgrimage was a, a wonderful way of uh, expressing that, but also realizing it afresh for ourselves. And many of our encounters on the way, um, I think, brought that uh, brought that out to us very clearly that people we met were um, actually waiting for something that could reconnect them with a spiritual dimension of their lives and their existence, which too often is just looked over or ignored. Especially in the modern world, brother. I mean, when you think about the things that most folks, especially lay people, are surrounded by, to see your witness, this 
pilgrimage, 800 mile uh, or, no, or 200, what is it, 230 mile pilgrimage. <laughs> of course, it's going to attract people. Let me ask you a question just on a historical note. If you're just joining us here at the front line with Joe and Joe, we're being joined by Brother John and Brother Bede of the Dominican Order in England. And they, these guys, they did a uh, two of four gentlemen who did a 230 mile pilgrimage from Kent to Oxford to mark the 800th anniversary of the founding of the Dom or, or the arrival of the Dominican order in England. Just uh, give me a little bit of history here. When, when the order got to England, you're, so you're talking about what then um, early 13th century was, was England by that time firmly a Catholic nation or did, did they still have the residue of, uh, of the paganism that they had, they had practiced, let's say, up up to a certain point. Were, were they Catholic yet, or were they kind of mixed? What was the situation when the order got to England? Yeah, so England was very definitely Catholic by the 1220s. Um, the church was very well established. I think what, and heresy wasn't threatening England in quite the same way at that time as it was in southern France and uh, northern Italy. Um, although in years to come, in the, the following century, heresy was going to become a a bigger issue in England. Um, but I think what the Dominicans found when they arrived in England was a country um, riven with civil unrest. Um, this is the time uh, just before King John and um, his dis big dispute with the barons, which brought about Magna Carta. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people in the country were very uneasy. Uh, the church um, I suppose, was maybe already becoming susceptible of those kinds of accusations, which became more and more prominent leading up to the Reformation about uh, being too comfortably ensconced in its position. So um, what the friars could bring to, to England at that time was, so to speak, a breath of fresh air, um, okay. a new wind of the gospel. And it's interesting that actually one of the, I mean, the, the friars headed straight to Oxford, to engage with the emerging university there. So um, these, this kind of seed of opportunity, seedbed of opportunity, um, intellectual opportunity that was emerging. Um, but very soon the, the friars also became noted advisors to kings and they played an important part actually in helping to heal many of the, many of the divisions that had arisen um, in the land politically. Mm. Uh, and um, exercised a, a great deal of soft power to um, temper conflict and to uh, bring about reconciliation in the land and um, juster policies on the part of the on the part of the king. Um, so there was a there was a, a space I think in which these um, learned but deeply religious men uh, could have a very big impact. I want to stress the fact that you're both Harvard grad, uh, Oxford graduates. Uh, excuse me, <laughs> but uh, what's it called? It's a very similar school. Joe, be careful. They're not Harvard graduates. God forbid. Okay, Oxford. There you go. Joe's brother's a Yale graduate, uh, but uh, that's a story for another day. But uh, but I, I just want to say that like there's a, a misconception, at least in America, of gifted people that they would not choose religious life. You know, like. I think we, as lay people, sometimes we give what's left over to God. We don't give the best. And you two epitomize, and I'm not just saying this, the best. And I want to stress that because I think that's what people have in their mind, like, oh, he became a priest because he couldn't make it, or no, no, that's not true. I want to first say that. Secondly, the importance of you both in Oxford, you are influencing those who will influence others. They're going to run companies. They're going to be judges. They're going to, they could be the prime minister of England. Talk about like vocations amongst say the folks that go to Oxford and also the reason why you're there. Clearly you are impacted by people and here you are, you're entering religious life. Talk about the significance of your order in Oxford and the importance of gifted people to have an open heart to God, to hear that call. So the as as um, B just mentioned, Oxford when uh, is very much where the friars were aiming to go when they first arrived, and the, the around the twelve twenties when the Dominicans were spreading from 
southern France and northern Italy, they were very much focused around centres of learning, around the universities which were just beginning in Europe, so Bologna and Paris and so on. So when St Dominic sent them in the general chapter in Bologna in 1221, the university was at the forefront of the mind. They, interestingly, they chose not to go to Canterbury, which was the sort of the ecclesiastical uh, capital where the church power was, or London, which was the political capital, but went on to Oxford, which was um, the intellectual centre. So um, when the, the priory we live in now was refounded in 1921, 100 years ago, so it's another anniversary. And the, the friar who refounded the priory, B. Jarrett, um, who was provincial, was very keen to re-establish our roots in that sense in this intellectual centre of the country and the importance of um, study and, and the intellectual life to the Dominican vocation um, made this an obvious and important place for us to be. And, uh, and this is in our in our province, our centre of studies, so where we do our formation. Um, and it's a, it's a huge privilege to do it in, in such a centre of learning and to be able to engage a little bit with the university and, and those who are passing through. Do you Excellent. get like pushback? Because I mean, I, I can't speak obviously for the universities in England or in, in Europe, but I could speak for them in America. I mean, uh, Joe and I, I went to a Jesuit college. Joe went to Seton Hall in New Jersey. I mean, even in Catholic schools, um, Georgetown, Holy Cross, uh, Notre Dame, there, there is, you know, definitely a spirit of the world. I mean, I can't speak for Oxford, but I mean, you guys clearly you're wearing, you know, your habits. Uh, how, how do you, you know, basically get on with some of these folks? And do you get that pushback? Because it's here in America. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's pretty bad here. I got, I got to say, and it's not, and we're not exaggerating it. Uh, you know, if, if, if two guys like you were walking with your white habits across some you know, some university campuses, you probably get rocks thrown at you, seriously. Um, but I'm sorry. I just had to throw that in at the front line with Joe and Joe. Joe Pasillo and Joe Rissanello. Brother Bede, Brother John from the Dominican Order in England joining us here. So go ahead, brother, if you don't mind. I, I cut you off there. <laughs> no, 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 I was just going to say, I mean, we definitely don't get rocks thrown at us when we walk along the high street here. And it's, it's worth saying that Catholic life in Oxford is thriving. Um, it's perhaps a bit of an exception in this country in terms of the density of Catholic life because particularly the religious orders are um, Benedictines and Jesuits and Oratorians and, and us and Franciscans and Carmelites just outside of town and others. And there, there's a Catholic chaplaincy down the road run by the Jesuits, which is thriving. And there's the parish up the road, the, the oratory. So there's, there's a lot going on in Catholic life in Oxford. We have a wonderful Corpus Christi procession in June or May, June each year, um, which, is, which is quite a big event of the year. And there's, I mean, it's a, it's a secular university undoubtedly, and um, our uh, students who stick their neck out in student politics will invite some hostility undoubtedly, but it's not a place where it's threatening to walk about by any stretch, and there are wonderful opportunities for dialogue. I think particularly at an academic level, organizing, we have a couple of research institutes here, one, the Aquinas Institute focused on um, St. Thomas and his intellectual legacy and interpreting and responding to that, and the Centre for Social Justice after Bartolomeo de las Casas, and both of those engage in the university and, and invite speakers in and, and so on. So there's, there's a lot of opportunity for dialogue here, undoubtedly. Awesome. Let me ask you this. That's great to hear. Like, do you have adoration chapels there? Because I think that is a wonderful way for people to find the Lord, because ultimately, like dialogue and because I've been involved in, in, you know, being a, a cat, you know, teaching RCIA, doing different things in the church, people shut down, they don't want to hear it. But when the Lord is present, I think something changes. Is there adoration opportunities on Oxford? There, there is, and in, in, in because of the, all the different churches and different times and different places, there's no one church with perpetual adoration, so to speak, that I'm aware of. But um, those, because of the density of Catholic life and churches, which are all quite central in Oxford, you're never particularly far from the Blessed Sacrament. Which I think one, Night Fever's also... Night, yeah. I mean, you know a bit more about that. So Night Fever's a, a, something that actually started in Germany after the Cologne World Youth Day, I think. I don't know if you've come across it in the US, but it's a wonderful project where you have... Eucharistic adoration in the chapel in the in a church for the whole evening, and a team of volunteers go and invite people from the street to come in and light a candle in front of the Blessed Sacrament, sort of passes by, and that's been a wonderful success here, and it's a, it's a very beautiful ministry, it's a very kind of simple form of evangelization to bring people directly to the Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. 
we have we have something similar uh, in the New York area at Our Lady of Good Counsel in uh, Manhattan. They do what they call Catholic Underground, and what's interesting is it's at, it's at night, you know, on a Saturday night. Uh, it's always on a Saturday night, and the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, they they run it, and the church is packed on a Saturday night. You think everybody's out partying? You get all these people that are. A lot of young people, a lot of young people um, that are packed into this church and the brother, you know, the brothers and the friars, they're playing some music and Jesus is right there on the altar. So we have something similar. It's available, you know, it's available to us and it does attract young people. You're at the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo, Joe Racinello. We're in the breach with Brother Bede and Brother John of the Dominican Order in England. Um, Let's talk about the journey a little bit, uh, if you don't mind the... um, the 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 pilgrimage. Um, I have a question. What what was what do you feel like was the hardest thing um, to overcome in, in your journey? Obviously, that's that's you know you two guys look like you're in pretty good shape, but you know that, that 230 miles is 230 miles. And how how you slice it? But what was the hardest thing that uh, you went through on that journey? What was the most challenging thing? Well, physically speaking, for me at least, and I think all of us to a certain degree, were just the fact of blisters. Uh, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we only had we we were carrying all of our all of our kit with us so we could only bring a certain amount so we all only had one one pair of boots and um very early on our feet got pretty wet and you know mm-hmm. uh, did you stay wet. outside did you uh when, when it came time to rest did, were, were you were you out in the countryside or did you have a place to stay how did that work out for you no so people very kindly along the way put us up so priests and presbyteries um parishioners, Anglican and Catholic, in their homes. Um, a couple of nights we stayed with some sisters. Uh, so um, we every night we had a bed and were given, uh, we were really generously hosted along the way. And that actually was a something that really lifted our spirits and made the journey easier. But I think another, um, another difficulty or another challenge, but one that again was um, really fruitful was uh, the intensity of the whole thing that, you know, we were two weeks um, walking several hours a day. And then uh, at the end of the day, we had um, an engaging with people on the way. And then at the end of the day, uh, sorting out um, social media, uh, writing up uh, writing up our experiences of the day. Um, we, so we had a blog running on Catholic um, NCR. NCR. Okay. Uh, and uh, and of course, getting in touch with people who wanted to join us, or you know, asking questions, making inquiries. Um, so uh, there was a, but I think again that that was something that allowed us all to to put ourselves in the hands of um, in the hands of providence, and actually to realise how grateful we were that um, that that the pilgrimage was evidently bearing such fruit and touching lots of people. It particularly put in the context, it was the summer, but put in the context of the pandemic as well. There, there were numerous things that um, needed to fall into place for it to sort of work and ways in which things could have gone wrong and many of which were outside of our control. And so it was, it was, as I mean, incredibly beautiful experience from that point of view, just to completely trust in Providence and things did all fall into place. Um, so I suppose that at times added stress, but at times it, it was, as a result, incredibly fruitful. And, and the generosity of people, because that was another aspect. I mean, it was very much people's kindness along the way, which links to what Bede was saying earlier about the, the first Dominicans, and that's very much also at the heart of our life, uh, um, an involvement with the people we live with and, and um, work for, but also a dependence on their generosity. You know, it's, it's funny. I mean, you mentioned in the beginning of the conversation how, like, you know, there's a certain affluence, I mean, to England, to America, and we lose that simplicity. I mean, I've done a lot of backpacking before I got married, and I backpacked through Europe. I, I could remember I, I made a trip from one day from southern France to Pisa, we hitched a ride with a Canadian. We got to Pisa late at night and we couldn't find a place to sleep. And I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, I've never was faced with that. And we wound up staying in a church and they gave us this old bunk bed. And I remember it was like maybe close to 10 o'clock at night. And I said to myself, thank God that I have a place to sleep. I've never said that before in my life. And that is important. I mean, 
we're in the Christmas season. That was the story of Christ at his beginning. It, you, you really feel God's hand, and that, could, that can't be taught. That must be experienced. Did you have any moments like that? Like where you were hungry, you were thirsty. I don't know where I'm going to go. I'm lost. Someone comes and helps you. I mean, I did in my time of backpacking, and it really put me in a vulnerable place, but I felt God in a way I never felt him before. Could you talk a little bit about those experiences? I don't think so. We were, we were very fortunate. I mean, things particularly because of the pandemic came together at the last moment a little bit. We had planned our where we would our itinerary, particularly because the structure of the pilgrimage was that people would join us along the way. So we put out these videos. We also had a website saying every day where we're walking to and from, and people so that people could walk with us. So there was an element of um, planning ahead of that, um, and wonderfully it did come together, and we we found places. But definitely along the way, in, in smaller ways, and even that none of those, there were no cancellations, or I think there were some had to rearrange. I mean, one thing that I remember, this is very small, but perhaps encapsulates um, the pilgrimage as a whole, is I remember one morning we were singing Lords or Vespers in one of the churches, and there was a hymn in our office book um, that I looked at and I thought, oh, I know that hymn, so I started. And it went horribly wrong when I just completely lost the tune. Um, and thankfully, there was someone who was joining us that day. So it must be Lords for the convict, for the pilgrimage, who had a beautiful voice and just started singing and picking up this whole hymn. Um, and it was it was just quite a nice little moment of the sense in which we were being carried by those who were walking with us and very much relying on on their gifts um, to to make it to bring it all together. A similar thing to that um, was actually right at the beginning of the pilgrimage. We had. Um, pretty badly miscalculated how long it was going to take us to walk from one place to another. Yeah. And um, our, map, our map reading got better as we went along. <laughs> but uh, so one day we had planned, we had arranged with an Anglican parish, we were going to sing Vespers in their church at 5 p.m. Um, we didn't arrive until 6.30 p.m. Um, and we had thought that everyone would go home, the church would be locked up, it wasn't going to work. Um, as it happened, um, someone who had been with us had actually managed to go ahead and let them know. And so um, the people went away at five o'clock, but they came back to greet us again at 6.30. And in fact, more people came back with them um, because word had got around more about these friars coming into the town to sing, sing Vespers in this church. And so we were actually greeted um, by a really uh, um, full uh, set of pews. Uh, which was very encouraging on on the first that, day. Really, that's so that's so awesome. I mean, I mean, just you know, that that just imagining that um, and and the full pews, like you said, that's great. Um, I will ask you. We got two uh, about a little under two minutes before we have to take a break. Curiosity about the white habits. You made it a, a very. Um, you know, you, you all four of you, when you made the journey, uh, you all wore the white habit. Was that of particular importance? I mean, aside from the fact that you wear a white habit, but was the idea of wearing the habit, making sure that people saw the white habit, was there a particular uh, reason why uh, you wanted to emphasize that? Definitely, I think the habit is so recognizable. Um, it made us actually much more approachable in a way because people could take an interest and uh, they could they could think this is something they want to find out about. Um, so we were visible in a way we simply wouldn't have been otherwise, and that facilitated a lot of encounters. But also importantly for ourselves, you know, um, the habit is a, an important mark of our identity. It's something in the same way that we say at baptism we're clothed with um, with a new garment spiritually. Um, well, this is meant to be a, a visible and physical reminder to ourselves of the new people that we are striving to become. Um, by the radicalization of our baptism in the mm -hmm. religious world. And so um, to carry this with us, even though it's maybe not the most practical walking gear, our rosary is always getting caught on thorns. And, uh, <laughs> very stained. Uh, very stained. I mean, white was an awful color choice. 
But it was me. We had um, someone had the brilliant idea beforehand who was helping us out. We had little business cards we carried so that when people asked us a question, that card we could give them, which had our website and so on. So that sometimes if it was a very brief encounter, they could find out more information afterwards. And you had this amusing thing that we would always walk in a in a group that sometimes would be a bit spread out if others were walking with us. And you'll see on people's faces, they would kind of, because there were four of us, they'd always end up asking the last person. They'll see the first, like, hmm, that's odd. And then the second, like, yeah, that's strange. And then finally pluck up the courage to actually ask what's this about when they get to the last person. So that person's always miles behind. Let's take a, let's take a quick break. Uh, you're with the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello in the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network. We have Brother Bede and Brother John of the Dominican Order in England, marking the 800th anniversary of the arrival of that order um, on England shores. Um, so yeah, we're gonna take a quick break, and then when we come back, we're gonna talk maybe about some encounters you guys had, maybe some good, maybe some not so good. So stick around. We're gonna be right back with Brother Bede and Brother John. Listen to all five of our original Veritas shows. Every Wednesday at noon, you can catch Let Me Be Frank, where Bishop Frank Caggiano talks about spirituality, church news, and fun stories from his Brooklyn childhood and his life. You can hear The Frontline with Joe and Joe every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Their guests include the biggest names in the Catholic world, and Joe and Joe talks to them from the perspective of the everyday Catholic. Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, tune in for the only late-night talk show on Catholic media anywhere. It's Not That Late with Liv Harrison. And at noon on Friday is Restless. It's four millennials talking about, well, life as millennials in today's crazy world. Yes, it's possible to be young and Catholic. Right after that, at 12.30, you can hear the focus on Veritas, where we put the focus on good works and the good people doing those works. Those are the five Veritas shows, and there's more on the way. Stay up to date at VeritasCatholic.com or on the mobile app. Welcome back, everyone, to the front line with Joe and Joe, Joe Pasillo and Joe Racinello in the breach on the Veritas Catholic Network, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial. And for those of you just joining us, we are joined by Brother John and Brother Bede of the Dominican Order in England. They did a 200, well, they and two of their brothers uh, did a 230-mile pilgrimage from Kent to Oxford, to commemorate the 800th anniversary of the arrival of the Dominican Order in England. Thank you again, guys, for being on the show with that. Uh, Joe, I'm going to just go right into it, if that's okay. I'm, I want to talk a little sure. bit about, uh, about um, you know, 230 miles, guys. That's that's a long way. Can you share with our audience uh, maybe a couple of good experiences, encounters you had? Maybe maybe there was one or two not so good. What was, what was that like? What did you guys encounter? Um. I mean, it, it, I mean, I can I can barely think of any negative encounters. We were very blessed in how positive and warm everyone's experience was. I mean, I guess more bafflement and amusement in a lot of cases, um, and confusion. Hence, it was nice to talk to people and say a bit about what we were doing. Um, we, I mean, there were yeah, lots of amusing encounters. I remember one in a park in London. We came across um, a pair of women who were doing an exercise class of some kind. Um, and, and we were walking through a park and, and the, the, the pupil or however the person who was paying for this class was very glad for a break and so came straight to come and talk to us and her instructor was um, simply amusing and they dragged on the conversation as long as they could to try and get a break to this exercise class and the <laughs> quite amusing conversation resulted in us doing some kind of squat exercise with them which <laughs> nice.
when we got to talk to them, then sort of wanted to join for longer and, and be be part of the pilgrimage. Mm. Awesome. You know, I, I want to just talk a little bit about what we were talking about on the other side of the break, the, the providence and a pilgrimage, because I've I've done a little bit of, uh, you know, hiking across all over the world, actually. Um, and I've also, I know Brother John, and I want to talk a little bit about this with your work with the Missionaries of Charity. I was their driver for a number of years. Um, I'm still working with them. Um, the need to be vulnerable. Christ was always vulnerable. And I'm, as a married man, I have five children. How I'm going to educate them, I don't know, you know, with regard, but I, obviously, we're open to life. As Catholics, we must be vulnerable. And a pilgrimage opens you up to that. I always strive to be in that space because that's the space of encounter. Christ is not there many times in abundance. He's there when there is that absence of sometimes comfort. You're vulnerable. You open yourself up. A pilgrimage does that. Talk about the need to stay in that space. Now, here you are. You're at Oxford. You're talking to the you know people. They're going to influence the world to stay vulnerable. I struggle with that as a married man. Like, it's important for me to stay in that space because that's where I meet the Lord. Talk about that from your perspective. So I think there's a way in which going on retreat is actually a like you said, it's an experience that makes you vulnerable. It's a, literally a dislocating experience. And in that sense, it does very effectively um, what retreats can also do. Uh, but in a certain way, I think it, um, it can be even more effective than a retreat in the sense that, um, you know, and you, you, go, you go on retreat and you, um, you can plan in advance what you're going to do, or maybe you've got someone giving you talks in that time. And certainly that you're, you're, allowing a space for grace to operate there. There's a certain way in which on a pilgrimage, you're accentuating the, the aspect of, like you say, vulnerability and um, putting yourself outside of, outside of a comfort zone, outside of a place where you can hide from, uh, from yourself, from your, uh, your tiredness, your feelings, um, from, uh, also from the, the purpose with which you're walking, um, you know, because, uh, whether or not you're thinking consciously about it, the whole motivation all the time is heading towards your destination, um, that holy purpose. And um, of course, it's really difficult to translate that back, to bring it back into um, our ordinary lives. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why there's a great wisdom in the Catholic tradition, um, recognizing the value of pilgrimages and retreats, times that we set aside, or even within our day-to-day -day lives, times that we set aside for prayer. Um, the idea that we have to um, go somewhere to encounter the Lord, to meet him, you know, if it's going to the priest in the sacrament of reconciliation, for example, going to the church for Holy Mass, um, reminds us that uh, we have to we have to go out of ourselves in a spiritual way as well in order to be the recipients of his grace and that um uh the lord is of course you know doesn't it, it, it his grace uh is all sufficient and doesn't require any um any work on our part that isn't already being brought about by his grace but we um we have to see that for that reason he um he sets the terms and we have to allow ourselves to be um, surprised by him. And, uh, and I think, yeah, I mean, vulnerable, I think is the, the best word you really hit it on the, on the head where we have to be receptive to him. Um, so we can't always be, um, we can't always recreate that so consciously in our ordinary lives, but I think pilgrimages provide us with a kind of icon which remind us of the attitude with which we should try to live. Uh, and That's right. That's what I'm kind of like, because I've had moments. It's like sort of like the transfiguration moment. They witnessed the Lord, but then they had to go down the hill and get back in the valley. But it's that memory. I have many memories of that. Like, even like Christ, when he approached the woman at the well, that was a vulnerable moment. Why are you talking to her? Why? He put himself out there. 
this is where we bear the most fruit. And I think pilgrimages and in my life with the sisters, because they, I've seen them do things, go places. They're fearless women, like fearless, go into housing projects, walk down streets that are like, you shouldn't be there, but they do. That's where we bear the fruit. And I think pilgrimages teach us this. We're too comfortable. Like, and Joe and I like try to encourage men, particularly, we got to get out of the boat. Christ constantly was vulnerable. And that's where we encounter him. You know, like we encounter that woman at the well. We encounter Zacchaeus. We encounter Levi. These people shouldn't have followed Jesus Christ, but they did because he allowed himself to be there. You're doing that right where you're at, actually, dressed the way you are in the university. But I think that's important to stress, and that's why I bring it up. I, I try to do it constantly. I don't always succeed. <laughs> Go ahead, brother. I was just going to say that, um, a couple of things. I think that the transfiguration is a wonderful way in which to under understand this point as well, because of what you say about often only seeing the fruits of something after the fact, because you get a sense in the, the different accounts of the transfiguration of a slight confusion among the apostles. Peter wants to stay there, Peter, James, and John, but they, um, they're kind of overwhelmed and bewildered by this experience. And then you get in Peter's second letter an account of the transfiguration where he mentions it, where he's had that the time, um, and there's almost a sense in which he now actually understands what happened on the mountain, which he didn't then. And I think pilgrimage can be similar, that the fruits and the, the graces we receive from it, and when you're spending your whole day focusing on getting to the end of the day, dealing with your blisters, and um, very immediate concerns, you only really begin to see the fruits and the graces you receive from that after the fact. Um, and, and one other thing that is, is also related, I think, on this point of vulnerability is um, an immense grace of the pilgrimage uh, for us was receiving prayer intentions along the way and we um, made a real point at the beginning and throughout that we had an email address that people would send in their prayer intentions and we would pray the rosary three or four times a day as we walked and along with those who walked with us we would pray one of these intentions at each decade um, and in terms of vulnerability there's a real sense of shared vulnerability there it was very moving the intentions people entrusted to us in terms of quite serious thing, things going on in their lives and um, concerns and worries, deep sufferings and, and vulnerabilities. And there was a shared vulnerability in that and a great sense of privilege for us then to entrust that to us. And also just the shared vulnerability of walking as a group in a community and, and dependent on each other, that that vulnerability is not an individual thing, but it's something we share both physically among ourselves and as a whole community of the church. That's great. I, 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 it's, it's just awesome. Uh, you're listening to The Frontline with Joe and Joe. If you're just joining us, we'll be jo we're being joined, or we are joined, by Brother Beat and Brother John of the Dominican Order in England, and they just completed a 230-mile journey, a pilgrimage from Kent to Oxford to commemorate the 800th anniversary of the Dominicans' arrival in England. With that, I'm going to hand it back to Joe Resinello. I mean, I've read a lot about the state of, of our faith in, in Europe in terms of, uh, you know, the population of folks that go to church. I, I mean, I could speak for America. Um, I, you know, live in a very middle-class town, mostly Irish, Italian, Polish. People are Catholic. They don't go to church. Um, they don't see the need for it. There's definitely a decline in, in the faith, you know, in America. You know, there's no question, sadly. I think that has to do with our comfort. We're, like Mother Teresa said, what will keep your order faithful after you're gone? She said, adherence to poverty and also to the Eucharist, and we'll never go astray. You see, comfort, as you all know, it, it, we, you say, oh, I, I have my food. It's in the fridge. I, I need money. I go to the money machine. I, I think we don't need God until we're sick. You know, like which is completely a fallacy because we need God every second of the day. I'm fully aware of my weaknesses. Um, I think that's where our, our, our church, we become comfortable. Talk about that. Like Europe, what's happening there? How do we bring that spirit back? I could speak to America, getting back to basics, 
rosary, Eucharist. Talk about getting back to basics and the, the dangers of comfort in some of these countries. They used to have Catholicism was the heart and soul. France, Italy, Spain. No one's going to church. Yeah, so I think um, on the one hand, we have, uh, it's true, a great deal of material, comparative material comfort and affluence. But there are, I think, spaces um, where we where we do see the lack of um, people feel tangibly the lack of God uh, in um, the growth of uh, anxiety, uh, feeling of futility and pointlessness in life, directionlessness to our existence, um, an inability to find any kind of unifying um, social identity or um, something that. Uh, really brings us together in, um, and something that also doesn't just bring us together as a group, but also uh, completes us and perfects us as individuals. We're, we're definitely living in a, in a post-Christian age because um, we feel the lack of, um, of Christian, specifically Christian identity. Um, there's a way in which atheism, as we understand it now, um, could only ever come about in, come about out of or from a Christian society. Um, you know, we're not. Um, it's not like we've straightforwardly reverted to paganism or, or anything like this. And so I think um, people often um, feel the kind of thirst for God that's constitutive of the Christian experience. You know what Saint Augustine says: "My heart is restless until it rests in you." It's just that people despair. Um, that there is a God really to turn to, um, what we can find him. Or there's maybe this, on the other hand, a kind of pride, a sense that we can find it in our own resources, that we can um, make superhumans out of ourselves somehow or another. Uh, and often those, um, that remains an aspiration which, which has yet to be realized and, and is again and again disappointed. So there, there are new kinds of poverty um, that we can return to. But I think a lot of um, a lot of the way. So getting back to basics here. Um, yes, we know the um, the essentials of Catholic devotion. But I think something that's common to these um, devotions is that they involve not just trying to become more familiar and more intimate with God, um, but also uh, seeing ourselves, so to speak, in the mirror and becoming more aware of our own fragility and our own need um, for the Lord. You know, when we come before the Blessed Sacrament and kneel there in adoration, we're not just confessing that God is the Lord, but we're also confessing that we are his creatures. And uh, when we pray the rosary, when we search the scriptures, um, we find there, uh, and again, this is a great theme in St. Augustine, we find there um, actually an exploration of something that resonates very, very deeply with something uh, in us. So we're never just um, hearing the word as something external to ourselves, but uh, we're always coming to a deeper self-knowledge. And self-knowledge is something I think that we can tap into. If you look at the popularity in, in general culture of um, uh, psychology, psychoanalysis, um, figures like Jordan Peterson, um, a lot of what, what it taps into actually is this um, deep sense of the need for a, a real understanding of who I am, where I've come from, um, and why my life doesn't make sense. Uh, so I think uh, if we can become more honest about this with ourselves and incorporate that into our prayer, or realize that this is already an element of our prayer, it may give us a better vocabulary and a more, um, a more sympathetic spirit with which to engage our contemporaries. Yeah, I, I, I it, it, and and the engagement part. I mean, it's something that obviously we have to try to do because we've had now how how however many centuries of the Enlightenment, and basically the watering down of the Christian faith, the corruption of the Christian faith. Um, then you have the supplanting of the Christian faith by, let's say, later on like Nietzsche and the transvaluation transvaluation of values. This is all deeply seeded seeped into our consciousness, both in Europe and America. Western civilization is just is just 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 riddled with this stuff your task 
and what and what especially as Dominicans, the, the, the order of preachers, okay, has to be so much taller, much taller of a task than it than it's been in history uh in the modern times. Let me ask you this. Um, obviously Matthew and his gospel said, go therefore, wrote, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. What are some of the more, let's say, effective means of going about the e evangelizing the culture, particularly, again, we're talking about Western Europe here, we're talking about America, but we're all in the same swamp, quite frankly. What are the best means that you find of evangelizing? Um, what do you find to be, let's say, the most effective way, as you mentioned earlier, I believe, Brother Bede, when you said we need to proclaim, what's the best way to proclaim it? What's the best way to get the proclamation of the gospel out there? I think one thing that immediately comes to mind and, and bore fruit on the pilgrimage is a sense of gospel joy. And I think one thing that, I mean, a reality of the pilgrimage is the four of us had a great time. We loved every minute. And, and those who joined us, I think, loved it. And there was a sense of the joy of what we were doing. And, and that's why people were drawn to join as well. And, and that importance of that joy, of, it authenticates the gospel we're preaching. It says we, we bring a, a gospel that is good news and brings joy to your life. And that reminds me of, Joe, you mentioned your work with the missionaries of charity, and they've been hugely instrumental in my life. And I think primarily for their joy in that seeing the intensity of the work they do. I spent six months working with them in, in Haiti, one of the poorest countries in the Western Hemisphere, the poorest in the Western Hemisphere, I think, in some deeply tragic situations which have zero joy about them in a the sense if you really think about the state of people's lives and what they're living through. And yet they somehow still were able to do their work with a genuine joy. And it became so evident that the only reason they had this joy, which wasn't a sort of a, a fake surface happiness, it was something deep within them, is because their life was rooted in, in prayer and in the Eucharist and in their community life and a sense of serving Jesus and the poorest of the poor. Um, and that, that joy is deeply authentic and no one can take that away from you. And I think going about our lives in a sense of living it with a, with a joy, with a sense of this is, I've got good news to share and I want to share it with you because it will it will bring the meaning and fulfillment to your life that you're seeking and that you know you're seeking um, is, is a, an obvious starting point. I think, Joy, I think you're right. People, you know, this is not like tick the box. You know, this is not like necessarily when I say, you know, our faith, there's definitely an intellectual pursuit to it. Um, but then there's just the basics of what you said, joy, and also the fruit of a good life. I call it the art of living. I had many, I, I come from a very blue collar family, people who barbers, you know, people, construction workers who lived a good life because they, their life was animated by God. Um, I think to be truthful with you, the, the radicalization of Christ's presence on earth has to be put back in the faithful. I am always attracted like to radical Catholicism. I've always been the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal, uh, your pilgrimage, the missionaries of charity. I think we have to get back to those radical walks and People are interested in authentic Christianity. It stops traffic. Like lukewarm, like Catholicism, frankly, as Christ said, like, I'll spit you out of my mouth. I'll be honest with you. I'm not interested in, I'm interested in the full Monty. And I think the world is too. And sadly, a lot of people are afraid to go there. We have to, we can't be like everybody else. Talk about being different, not following the crowd. I'm sure you see it at Oxford. I get my degree. I'm going to go make tons of money. That's what happens in America. They go to fancy schools, Catholic schools, Georgetown, Notre Dame. I'm going to go make tons of money. That That's not why we're here. Talk about being different. Like we're, we're, we're called to be a people separate. Yes, so I think this is a, an, in, an interesting question. We're called to be a people separate, and yet um, the irony that runs through the, the New Testament is that a lot of the time our separateness actually consists in our being hidden. So there's, uh, in the early um, epistle of Barnabas, which is a, a letter, not in scripture, of course, but written probably in the second century, um, there's a beautiful image there which says that Christians should be like the soul of the world. And I think this is expanding on um, what we hear from the mouth of our Lord himself, that Christians should be a leaven to the world. 
um, there should be a light in the world. Um, but the thing about the leaven and the thing about the light is sometimes that um, what's most valuable about its difference is that you don't notice it. The light lights up other things. The leaven um, is a tiny amount mixed in with the mass of flour. Um, and so there's a very important work of silent witness that we um, have to carry out. And I think that it's important that the church, because it's a body and it's articulated and lots of different parts can do different things. And so we need the visible icons of people in religious life, um, people living really, really radical poverty, like the Franciscan Friars of the Renewal and the Missionaries of Charity, um, to be reminders to us of the radical difference of God and the fact that uh, his grace um, isn't just something theoretical, it's not just something we talk about, um, but it, it makes a difference in the world. It's an event and it transforms us. But at the same time, uh, we also um, need members of the, of the body of Christ um, who can be inspired by that example, but who internalize it and who carry that kind of attitude um, to the workplace uh, to make a, a renewal or a transformation from within. So people who um, go to the kind of jobs that make lots of money, but don't go there just to make lots of money. People who go there um, to seek justice, um, to find new ways of uh, spreading the gospel, to, to live simply, frankly, to live upright lives, to live good lives, because sometimes uh, in secular society, that, that in itself is a, is a hard enough challenge, just to, um, just to keep the law and not do anything extraordinary. Uh, so I think um, a lot of our radicality has to be um, actually internal. Sometimes we have to settle for a kind of invisibility um, at the same time as we always allow ourselves to be inspired afresh. And if God calls us there, um, we have to be ready to drop things and go the extra mile, like you say, to, um, to the real margins of society. But um, there are obvious margins and there are less obvious margins. Well, you remind me of like Our Lady. She lived the hidden life. Uh, that reminds me of St. Joseph, clearly never said a word, uh, yet he's, you know, the patron of the universal church. Um, but again, uh, to be honest with you, they took bold steps. I mean, what you guys did, is it, that's a bold step. You gave your life to God. Married couples take a bold step who are open to life um, in this world. You know, single people who give their life in service to their community. Um, Joe, we so have about Joe. We have about two and a half minutes left. If you, uh, I'm sorry to cut you off. If you want to give uh, the brothers, uh, if you had one more question, we got about two and a half minutes left, brothers, because then we want to leave a little bit of time for you to tell our audience out there at the Veritas Catholic Network where they can maybe follow you guys or connect with you guys on social media and all that. So, Joe, what do you got? Well, what other movements are going on of the Holy Spirit? Um, obviously, we're not in England. You know, I read about certain things, you know, throughout the Catholic world. What's what's going on out there? You know, different orders that are popping up, different lay movements that you've seen um, that are bearing some fruit that people would want to hear about. So the, uh, I think there's a, a lot going on. Um, across Europe. I mean, one thing we've seen in England recently, which I think is quite impressive, are a number of um, youth movements, which uh, in very different ways engage um, young people, but also engage uh, kind of questions that are particularly pressing in modern society. So things like um, Youth 2000, uh, Faith Movement, Evangelium um, is one thing. Of course, within the church more widely, there are more um, larger organized kind of um, uh, renewal movements, which um, I think are probably stronger in, in on the continent in Europe than they are in England, but nevertheless are making some impact here. Um, well, yeah, that, I, mean, I think there are also some in the in the Dominican order. There's a, um, a wonderful uh, emphasis on also on work in the in the arts and in technology and to to really live and preach the gospel um, in the fullness of human life in a very incarnate incarnational way. Um, there are there's a, a, a an artist movement in, in there's an exhibition recently in Estonia I think celebrating the 800th jubilee that um, seemed to bear wonderful fruit and um, I think that sense in which as Dominicans our mission is to preach the gospel and there are no limits on where and how you can preach the gospel. 
Amen. Well, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to leave it right there. Unfortunately, it's radio, guys. I mean, we would love to talk to you, but you know, so we have a limited amount of time. Where can our audience uh, find you, connect with you, keep track of you, perhaps communicate with you? Uh, website, social media. What do you got? So we're on Twitter and we're on Facebook. They, so, so there are a the couple of places. There's we the students here. So we're part of the, the Dominican Student Studying Formation. We have a blog called God's Dogs. G O D Z D O G Z. The the dogs of the Lord, the Dominicanes, is a, a, a medieval nickname for the Dominicans. So God's Dogs. That has a Twitter profile. We've got a blog, a YouTube channel, um, and then also the the province's website, the English English Dominicans is um, English.op.org, um, which simply carries that blog and, and weekly homilies. And the priests on the Sunday Gospel. And if people are especially interested in the in the pilgrimage and the jubilee, there's a dedicated website, um, dominicanjubilee.com, I believe. Yeah. Um, Excellent. Uh, and and when and when this program is available for podcast and download, which it will be after it airs, um, then um, then we, we'll link to all of those. You send us the links, fellas, uh, and we'll make sure that our audience can can click on those links. And, and like I said, follow you guys and what you're doing. You're a great example, um, you know, as to what we all need to both, you know, lay people and religious need to be doing as Catholics. So God bless you. We really appreciate it. Thank you for being on the show. We really do appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you for thank welcoming you. us. Yeah, thank you. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, thank you for enjoying it. You're welcome. And thank all of you out there for listening to us at the Veritas Catholic Radio Network, spreading the truth of the Catholic faith to the New York metropolitan area, 1350 on your AM dial, 103.9 on your FM dial. Please be sure to download the Veritas Catholic Network radio mobile app so that you could have access to all of our station's content. And follow Joe and I on social media. Our primary channel is The Frontline TV. The Frontline TV on YouTube. We'd really love for you to like, subscribe, share, do all that fun stuff. And remember until the next time that our conversation is your conversation and that conversation is going on everywhere. We'll talk to you soon. 